Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. You guys look so badass in your suits. Do they chafe? And do you, how do you pee? (laughs) Hey everyone, thanks for joining me. I'm Evelyn with you here on Repin. My guest today is an incredibly talented actor, producer, and director. He's got an expansive list of credits in film, theater, and television. He's known for his starring role on Showtime's hit series, Homeland. He played David Estes, the director of the CIA's Counterterrorism Center, alongside Claire Danes and Damian Lewis. He's co-starred with Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Connelly in Blood Diamond. You've also seen him in The Man in the High Castle, The Night Manager, and most recently as Hank Henshaw, Jean Jones in Supergirl, where he also made his directorial debut. He's also had an illustrious theater career and even made history in 1997 playing the National Theater's first ever Black Othello. But his personal journey has been a very difficult one. When he was in his 20s, he suffered a psychotic break. In 2017, on World Mental Health Awareness Day, he wanted to support those struggling with mental health and he took to Twitter and spoke publicly about his experiences for the first time. The response was so overwhelming that he wanted to tell his story and piece together what happened to him so he could help other people understand what it's like to experience psychosis. He was soon commissioned by the BBC to produce a powerful documentary about his journey titled Psychosis and Me. In the film, he retraced his steps to key locations from his breakdown and meets the people who witnessed his decline He sees his medical records for the first time and learns what actually happened is dramatically different from what he thought happened. He's here to talk about all of this and more. Please meet the amazing David Harewood. First of all, thank you so much for being here. How are you doing? You look fantastic. You're in Vancouver, correct? I'm in Vancouver, yes. I'm actually um, just putting the finishing touches to my first book. I've just finished them, 80,000 words. I'm very feeling very happy and very chuffed that I've got, I got to the end and I'm just sort of, um, you know, I've been writing, writing about this book for about six months now. It's been quite difficult, but I feel great that I've got to the end of it. What is this book about? And thank you for the scoop. <laughs> it's based on my documentary. I don't know if you've seen my documentary. Of course I did. I was inspired by that event, basically, to kind of go back and, and really kind of find out what happened to me. So I've sort of come back over my life from my very first memory, which is like when I was five years old, walking out the back door of my kitchen. And we lived in quite a racist neighborhood. And um, somebody threw a stone at me and cracked me straight in the head. Oh, my God. And that was one of my first memories of, of the outside world, just kind of wandering outside and moving my head around and getting this stone hit me in the face. I've kind of written this whole kind of book. It, it's really interesting because it kind of, as you say, mirrors very much what, what's happening today. It's interesting how um, you know, growing up in a quite a racist environment or a time when a, a certain group were sort of enforcing their supremacy 
it was kind of, kind of scary time. So I, I'm kind of sh- seeing how that shaped my life. Yeah. How that shaped my experience growing up. Right. And almost realizing that in, in a sense, I sort of became the clown, became an actor, almost to get away from that. And sort of found that in acting, my skin color was never a question. So I could be a king, I could be Hamlet, I could be Romeo, I could be, I could do whatever. And that was a wonderful place to be, to learn uh, acting. But when I came out of acting, came out of drama school, hit the real world, that's when the reality of, of realities of race and racism really kind of revisited me. And I suddenly, uh, that was a, a very difficult sort of, um, a very difficult thing for me, me to nav- a time for me to navigate as I suddenly realized that it was, it was all very real. Racism was very real. And, and that, uh, what, what that sort of meant for my sort of dreams and aspirations, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I mean, David, you just uh, opened up a whole lot of stuff that I wanted to get into. So I want to sort of back up just a little bit. You grew up obviously not from the Bronx. You're from mm-hmm. Birmingham in the UK. Mm-hmm. I am quite taken aback that your first memory is of being cracked in the head because of race. That being your one of your first memories, how do you think that impacted you? I mean, I can't even imagine like that's being your first memory is being cracked in the head and you were met with such racism. I mean, I know that you said in previous interviews, you had a happy childhood. You had a good family. Yes, I would, I, I would just jump in there. I mean, yeah. We internalize so much of that. Uh, you know, we, we do. We, you know, we've, for years, and we internalize that. And I, and, and I remember talking, trying to talk to my dad about his experience of coming to England. And he, he would never talk about it. It's difficult stuff to talk about. And I think for, for many years, we all just internalized it. You know, you just suck it up and get on with it. I think that's uh, kind of deep trauma that, that sits there. I found that, you know, when you are visible, like, you know, just after George Floyd's death, when suddenly Black Lives Mattered, white friends were calling you up and, okay, it was painful because we were suddenly visible. And talking about that sort of pain, I found anyway, kind of exhausting. And after a while, um, I didn't really want to talk about it. So you face racism at a very early age, being cracked in the head. And then also, you were the only black family on your street. Mm. Jumping forward, you know, you got into acting at the encouragement of your teachers. And you said you could play anything. Mm. You could be anybody. Race wasn't an issue. Mm. Talk a little bit about one of your defining moments when you became an actor and you were able to be anyone that skin color wasn't a problem because I think later on you were the first black actor mm-hmm. to play Othello in London's national theater in 9798 you were faced with incredible racism because you were quote unquote an other you were not black enough for the black audiences mm-hmm. and you were rejected by the white audiences. And I will quote you. And you said you were called a coconut. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I bring that up is because I've been called a banana. I kind of think I know what that is. Is it, if it's the same as the coconut? Yeah, it's exactly the same as a coconut, except it's used for Asians. A totally derogatory comment. Acting, you said you found your place in the world. Yeah. I mean, you didn't just go to any acting school. You went to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. Mm-hmm. So can we say overachiever? <laughs> it was a, 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 another twist of fate because I didn't know anything about drama schools. So I auditioned for about three places uh, before I ended up at RADA. 
and uh, was rejected from all three of those places. And then I went to the fourth one. It, it's not the best school. And uh, I, w- I was accepted. I cancelled my remaining auditions, which just happened to be the top five drama schools in the country, RADA being one of them, RADA, Central, Guildhall, Weber Douglas, and uh, uh, Lambda or something like that. So they were the top five. I cancelled them all. And then um, a couple of weeks after I'd got into this college, I got, I got a phone call from RADA saying, why didn't you turn up for your audition yesterday? And I just quick, very quickly surmised that they hadn't got the letter. So I just lied. And I just said, oh, I, my mum was ill, so I, I had to look after her. And he said, well, it's your lucky day because someone's dropped out tomorrow. Would you like to have their slot? Well, I just said, yeah, sure. And I just went down without a care in the world. I just had a great day. And I got in. <laughs> Thank God. Now let's go back to playing Othello. Mm-hmm. What was it like when you stepped into the role of Othello in London's National Theatre? You were the first. Mm. But it would actually marked, from what my understanding, the point where you really began to struggle with identity. Because unfortunately, you were not accepted by either audiences, black or white. Was that your first moment where you consciously recognized a struggle with identity and being an other? No, I, I think slightly got your timelines mixed up. Oh, okay. Because that, that happened prior to my breakdown. So actually, I was just thinking about it now. I, I entered the 90s just having recovered from my breakdown, which was as a result of, of uh, my struggle with identity. That was with Romeo. Got it. I, okay. I, I played Romeo. And that was my first job out of drama school. So I left drama school and almost, almost immediately walked into, you know, the, a sort of blaze of publicity playing being the first black Romeo. I think that's what you were referring to. That was met yes. with, with quite a lot of hostility and sneering comments and sneering reviews and, you know, dripping in right. colonial attitudes. And that certainly undermined my sense of identity. And in the, as I say, in the end, I, I stopped, I had to stop reading them because they were becoming uh, hurtful and um, were undermining me. I would say sort of undermining my sanity when they're attacking me so personally. I can't even imagine. So when you were getting such incredible scrutiny and you were having this, you know, horrible situation where you were getting attacked by, by both sides and then you were struggling with identity, that's what led you to the psychotic breakdown, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I want to jump into that because I did watch your documentary, mm-hmm. which is called Psychosis and Me. Mm-hmm. And let me just first tell you, it's really a great film. So I've worked on a lot of documentaries. I know when I'm working on a project, every frame of that footage is scrutinized. Mm. I give you every accolade because here you are producing this powerful, honest film. But this is your personal story. This is about your psychotic break. I don't even know how you would approach this. How do you balance between being, you know, the producer and filmmaker? Because you'd have to look at it with an objective eye uh, to be able to really sort of step back, be dispassionate with your approach in how you structure the story and how you tell the story. Mm -hmm. But also you're the person that lived through this struggle. But first, I want to slow down and, you know, give some background. Tell the audiences or listeners, like, what happened? I mean, you talked about being the Black Romeo. It should have been a celebrated moment. 
it turned into something that thrusted you into a real struggle of identity and a psychotic breakdown. Talk a little bit about that sort of time period and what you were going through. And then we'll get into the film because I think that documentary is something that I think everyone should watch. Well, you know, as I say, you, you know, I mean, I, I came, out of, came out of drama school and I suddenly found myself uh, in a very unfamiliar world. Um, as you say, being scrutinized, um, uh, feeling adrift from who I was. I hadn't really decided who, who I was. And I guess I started to, at its worst point, started to drink rather heavily and um, to kind of cover uh, how un- unhappy I was. I mean, as I said, I go into it in my book, but I had a, some very, had a very personal sort of me too moment, which was uh, with somebody which was also very destabilizing around that age. So I was, I was very unhappy and in a bad place. And I, I sort of came back to London really um, in, in a bad way. And I, and, I, and I guess I just sort of wanted to cover for that unhappiness uh, and by sort of inventing somebody else to be. I think the thing with psychosis is that, you, you know, you do have irregular thoughts you disturbed thoughts, hallucinations, delusions, and unbeknownst to me, they were already starting. But I wasn't aware of them. So I was getting these rushes of energy. And, you know, you get these rushes of dopamine in your brain, which kind of gives you a, almost a natural high. So I wasn't sleeping. I was getting up at three in the morning and going for walks across London. And, you know, as I say in the documentary, it was a tremendously sort of psychologically vivid, exciting yeah. uh, unusual time but eventually I said I just lost control of that and um, physically just became exhausted because I wasn't really sleeping and eventually it ended up being quite a traumatic and dramatic uh, um, breakdown. I cannot even imagine what that experience was like because I think from watching your film I learned that because of this rush of dopamine you're almost like enjoying it right it's almost it's like almost having a good time. There were several times when it was wonderful. And, you know, I mean, I, I have looked into this and there are other communities around the world where that is, it's treated very differently. And it's almost a shamanic, you know, people will come around and ask that person questions because they speak truths and they speak their minds and they speak out. So it's almost something close to a shamanic experience where you, you become a seer. And I certainly, there were certainly, for me, seemed to be a spiritual to it. It was very, very powerful. You know, it was a extremely florid I, I guess my head was so full of literature and imagery from acting that it just it just kind of took on a whole new cosmic um importance that time was obviously a very difficult time for you what made you decide to open yourself up and to do this documentary because going back to what I was saying before as a storyteller you are scrutinizing the story but here you are, you're scrutinizing your personal story and this fiercely personally challenging time. What made you decide to do it? And what was that like for you? I made a huge mistake. <laughs> I did. I made a huge mistake. It Why is that? Taught me a huge lesson. Which was? Because I thought I knew I thought I knew what had happened. I thought I remembered it all. So when I, I originally sent out a tweet on World Mental Health Day that I that I had a breakdown, just saying to everybody, you know, she's not the best, and you know, a little message of support. But it just exploded from there. Within a couple of days, I was writing an article for a newspaper, Guardian newspaper. A friend of mine who was around me at the time read the article and remarked, 
was heard to remark, that's not how I remember it. When I heard him that he said that, I thought to myself, I thought I knew what had happened. I thought that it was all quite fun and it was, you know, we had a bit of a laugh and I, I you know, just kept out for a week or so, and but it was all kind of weird. And uh, so I thought, maybe I've forgotten about it. That's when I then uh, pitched the idea to a producer friend of mine that I'd go back and find out, not knowing the truth. So the day when I get to the hospital with my two friends, right. that was literally the first time in 30 years I'd, I'd heard all of that. And I remember as soon as we were getting closer to that building, it just all started getting very real on the day. I, I was getting, I got quite scared actually, because I then suddenly realized, what else am I going to find? Yeah. I was really quite scared because it was quite a shock to me to realize that I'd been sectioned quite so dramatically. And right. my friend Nick was in tears. I saw him break down when he was telling me, and I thought, this, this had collateral damage on him. You know, this is the first time we'd spoken about it in 30 years. And then when I saw his emotion, it kind of triggered me. And I got, I broke down a little bit. And then I walked outside and I just remembered all of it. And I remembered how ill I was. Now, I was really very scared because I suddenly thought, I don't want to stop filming right now <laughs> and, and revisit this idea. Um, but Wendy was great. The director, Wendy, was great. She kind of brought me through it. I remained terrified for the rest of filming. Yeah. To jump back before that, I had said to Wendy, because we'd spoken before we started filming, I'd said, I'd said, look, I'm not going to ask any questions. I'm just going to experience it as it happens on the day. I don't need to know, you know, where we're going with this. So it, it was happening in the moment. And once that happened, I was, I was very, very scared because then, then I suddenly realized I also had to present this program and experience it at the same time. Yeah. So I was sort of processing it and presenting. And that was extremely difficult. Once or twice it got, it, you know, I had to cancel filming because I just had to, I had to say, look, I need a break because um, it was too much. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, I have to say this, and I'm going to say this very bluntly. It took some serious balls for you to do what you did, because I think the whole experience would have been frightening to do privately. Mm. But you did it, and you could see that this was the first time you were looking at your own medical records and seeing what the doctors wrote at that time, Mm. you were re-experiencing this trauma and it was done so honestly. I'm very proud of it. And I'm proud of it because it is so raw and so honest. And it's allowed me to be, I've only ever had an experience like that through acting, maybe once or twice in my career, where I've sort of been so in the moment 
I like a challenge. If someone said to me, somebody, someone said to me, you've got three days to, before you're on stage and playing King Lear, I think that was a real challenge. If someone said, look, we need you to get ready. We need you to get ready right now and go on as King Lear. I'd kind of go, great. It would thrill me. Right. And that's the same kind of, the first time I watched it back, my producer and my director, you know, they, they wanted to make sure I had all support systems in place. I had phone numbers of people I could call. I found it beautifully done. I thought there were so many, so many, um, so many editing decisions that were just perfect. How it described my looking in, in the mirror and stuff. I was like, oh, that's just fantastic. Yeah. I only freaked out when it was on television. That was a whole other experience. It just took a tremendous amount of courage. And I will challenge you respectfully when I say, I get the excitement and the thrill of having to prepare a project in three days, but this isn't a project. This is really going deep and in the most public and honest way. I didn't expect it to. And as I say, it caught me by complete surprise. And, and, And that's what made it so, such a journey because you could see the moment. You could literally see the moment happen. And from then on, I was, as I say, I was in, I was, in, it was a journey of discovery for me as well as the audience. And I sat in on that group of kids. They weren't originally supposed to be in the film that much, but that day was wonderful. You know, when they all opened up and started talking, talking to me. That, sitting in on that class, that was the most amount of information I'd heard on psychosis in 30 years. So I was like sitting there going, wow. And that's when I put my hand up and, and I answered the question and, one of those girls, one of the one of the girls turned to me and she went, "How would you know?" And I said, "Well, I had I had psychosis, and, and that's when everyone stopped, everyone started talking to me, and it was great. It became organic. They actually helped me. That's amazing. But I can't imagine the complex emotions you must have been feeling during filming, watching it, and putting it out there. Now that you've had a little bit of time from it, what was the one goal that you wanted to? to accomplish when you said yes to the project? And do you feel like you accomplished that goal? Yeah, I do. Because, um, which was exactly the reason why I sent that tweet out, which was just to try and sort of reduce the stigma or help people, just let people know that 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 happened to me. You know, that you're struggling. It's happened to me. I've got through it. And it wasn't the end of me. You know, I'm not embarrassed about it. I'm not, I'm not uh, um, shying away from it. You know, it, it happened. Uh, I'm happy to talk about it and just to kind of almost inspire people and let people know that we can recover from it. The area of mental health that's always, that's sort of shrouded in shame. You know, people talk about anxiety or depression or bipolar. They're all kind of kind of a bit cool. But no one talks about psychosis because, because it's the one where they take you away. It's, like, it's, it's where you lose your mind and go crazy. And it's never spoken about. So me, me doing it seems to have given people a language. What's been extraordinary is that, you know, I constantly get stopped by people in the street who say, just want to say thank you so much. You know, it's, it happened to my dad and we never talked about it because we didn't, know, we didn't know what to say. We were always a bit embarrassed about it. So we've never spoken about it. We saw your film and now we speak about it. And we go, yeah, yeah, psychosis. It's just because they just didn't understand it. People don't understand what happened. So it's given people just a bit of a language to talk about. And it's also given people sort of permission to come forward and, and deal with it. Literally the night after the documentary went out, calls about psychosis rose by 107%. Wow. So people are talking about it now. People are, oh, that's what's happening to me. I think I'm spinning out. I, it's psychosis. And, and, and particularly the number of actors that I've been asked to speak to, asked to support, because it's, 
tends to happen to a lot of young actors. And I, 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 didn't, I wasn't aware of that, but it, it, it's, quite, it's quite prevalent in uh, young kids studying at drama school, going through major changes in their life, dealing, living away from home, adolescence to adulthood, playing with different identities and emotions. It's a time that can be very fertile for psychosis and for major psychological change. Yeah, it definitely sounds like there's a lot there that could, you know, trigger a break. I also really want to point out, it's one thing to speak publicly in private circles. It's another thing to to speak publicly in public circles. But you really turned it all the way up, David. I mean, you didn't just speak publicly. Like, you literally walked into and revisited this traumatic time. I was really overwhelmed by it. How could you not be? We, we sat on the film for almost a year because the BBC wanted to put it out the following year. So I watched it quite a lot and I was quite happy with it. But when it came on the television, I was terrified. And I didn't, I didn't watch it. Nobody watched it in the house. I went to bed uh, thinking I'd ruined my career and uh, wondering what I'd done and had I, had I brought, you know, is, is it going to affect the kids? Is it going to affect the name? Is it going to affect... Well, and I, I had a bit of a panic. And then I, and as I was lying in bed, just everything started buzzing, beeping, and everything was bleeping, emails, ding, 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 ding. Then the phone started ringing. I ran downstairs. It was my mom on the phone. My, my mom was just gushing. She said it was great. And that made me feel better and calmed me down. She said she was really happy. She said, really, really good. Told the story well. And, and I just read some of these messages and emails, and they were all overwhelming, just incredible people, really incredible people, just saying how much it affected them and I, one letter from somebody you know quite quite high up at the high up in the organization just saying that he, had to, he actually had to apologize to me because he'd actually shown it to his family a month ago he said you know privately because it happened to their father they'd never spoken about it and so he had to show it to his brother and then his brother said we have to show this to you know the other brother so and we all sat down and watched it and it was the first time we'd spoken about it in you know a lifetime it's given people permission to talk about it. Your sharing your story has probably helped so many people uh, in a lot of different ways. One being, you know, recognizing, you know, a similar struggle they might be having. Depression, anxiety, PTSD, all of these things are very serious mental conditions and need support. But at least it's kind of out there. You're right. Psychosis and a psychotic break is so shoved in the back of the closet. There's really no understanding or awareness. And there's still a strong stigma attached. I really tip my hat to you, the amount of courage that it took to do what you did, not just share your story, but also in the way that you did it. When you sort of went through that process of making this film and the first time you saw it, what was the perspective that it gave you that you might not have had before the documentary? Because you said, you know, the way you remember it was obviously very different from what actually happened. Mm -hmm. And here you are, you're not only re-experiencing it, you are reading what the doctors were, you know, noting what your mental state was. And, you know, your friends who were with you at the time, you were getting their accounts of what they were seeing you go through, but also their accounts of what they experienced being around you. So you have all of that happening, and that's a lot. But David, you're also a producer and a director, so you have to approach it from those perspectives, too. So you're seeing your personal situation from all of these different vantage points. What did you get that you might not have had before that you learned about yourself 
that actually has now helped you? Well, here's the funny thing, because it's been quite a process. Just after it went out, I was just so overwhelmed by the response. Literally just sobbing in the street with complete strangers who would tell me their stories of brothers or you know, dads, mums, who it happened to. I just found it really overwhelming and painfully overwhelming. People would sort of break through the celebrity of, of my persona and it was they were coming straight to me and it was piercing. I felt very raw and very exposed. So I ran off back to Vancouver to film Supergirl and kind of licked my wounds while I was here. But then just trying to process everything. But then somebody asked me to write the book and I thought about it. And then I started jotting a few things down and, and then lockdown happened. And um, I was just sitting at home one morning and I just got up and started writing. But I wrote, I wrote two chapters, but I didn't, and you're talking about my, you think about my medical records. The scene was supposed to be, I sit there and read my medical records. But as soon as I read what was in it, I said, I'm not reading this. And we stopped filming. And whenever she asked me to look at the records again, I never looked at it. I just went into soft focus and just pretended to read because it was, this stuff is like dynamite. I put it in the envelope and I didn't look at it for two years. I put it on the shelf at the back there. But when I came back after lockdown, having started my book, I was like, I have to look at that. So I've been sitting with it for the last six months, sitting with all of my broken, demented thoughts, beliefs, and uh, what I was saying, what I was doing. It's, some of it's really painful. It's reading your broken mind and... Um, and so it's been kind of interesting to kind of sit with and decipher, but almost like a dream of being able to sort of put it together. And it's kind of, it's, it's made me just understand what my fault lines are and understand where my vulnerabilities are. I think now I'm able to process all of that and I can kind of sit here and say, I've looked at my most vulnerable, deepest thing, my, my weakest moment, and I've sort of embraced it. I've been there, touched it. I've sort of been with it, sat with it. And it kind of doesn't frighten me anymore. Nothing really frightens me anymore because I've, I've been to that place I've, twice. <laughs> I'm okay with it. You know, I'm okay with my faults and weaknesses. I continue to work on them. They won't ever spin me out anymore. I know what my fears are. You referenced it as dynamite, which I couldn't agree with you more. The, your ability to be willing to touch that dynamite and to look at it in the face is tremendous. A lot of people would be very scared to touch it. And that would be a very understandable position to have. But here you are, you're faced with a piece of your past and the realities of it is staring at you in the face. Mm -hmm. What gave you the strength to face it? So now you can be aware of your faults. It's given you a much fuller perspective. You see the good, you see the bad, and you see the ugly. And it doesn't frighten you anymore. So how are you willing to not only look at it, but you were able to transform it and you were able to incorporate it into who you are and to be comfortable with it? I couldn't write this book without it. I, I had to really go there. I never would have thought I was going to write an 80,000 word book. 
I found it remarkably easy because it just flew out of me. So it's a kind of a breakdown, it's a memoir of a breakdown recovery. And funny enough, I found the, all, the, all the stuff up to the breakdown really interesting to fascinating to write because it was like a trip through my past. Like I had to really start to understand my life, as I say, right from the, my very first memories, is just to tell the story of the whole story of where I am today and who I am today. So I knew I couldn't be honest if I didn't look at it. And um, I, I feel as though it's made me just far more, it's freed me. I'm far more honest with, with myself. I'm not afraid to face some of the, the racism I'm kind of, I wake up to sometimes, some days in my, in my Twitter feed. Yeah. Some of that can be destabilizing, but now I'm sort of, I'm, I know that I've done my, my work on race. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sort of, I've literally sent me crazy, you know, but I feel as though it's other people going crazy right now. Uh, as they try and wrestle with a new narrative, it can't take this other narrative. I feel quite confident and proud of my ancestry. I feel quite happy that I have the ability to offer up a different a, a counter-narrative to some of the stories that are out there. I just think it's fascinating because I, you know, when I was watching the film uh, Psychosis and Me, which again, I recommend to everyone to watch, it's just an important story. It sheds light on a topic that urgently needs attention. And it's so well done. If I was in your position, I would think that I would be walking into one of the most destabilizing experiences of my life. And I would be so fearful of it not only re-traumatizing me, but not being able to recover from it. And it's so remarkable that not only did you walk into a situation, granted, you might not have you know, thought it through all the way, <laughs> but it feels like what was a very difficult experience has become something that you own now versus it owning you. And it, it grounds you in some way. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely no doubt that I, I thought I was in a better place with this whole thing than, than I thought I was when I embarked on this project. And it was a lot more difficult than I thought. But in having said that, it has been the making of it because I feel as though, as you, as you say, by touching that hot stone, I think I've um, uh, been able to um, kind of reach back and understand, you know, by, by reaching back and kind of, you know, seeing that, the, those kind of darker moments, I've been able to sort of fill in the gaps understand where I am. And yes, as you say, it's destabilizing, but life is destabilizing. And my life has been destabilizing. And in a sense, it's kind of, it's something that's mirrored throughout my life because I've constantly been moving, playing in America and I'm working in Houston, working in New York, working in London, moving, shifting, changing. It's been a part of of who I am. I think uh, embracing that, you know, embracing that with all its faults has been a part of, as much a part of this journey as anything else. I think it's incredible. Now, because of your experiences, I'm going to make the assumption that that's also why you are such an advocate for mental health. Mm-hmm. And I think what's also really incredible is just your overall sense of humanity. You are involved with so many different charities, David. You are a mental health advocate. You're involved with engaging the Black community to encourage stem cell donation, getting people out to vote creating more realistic roles for Black actors and ethnic actors. You are the UNICEF UK ambassador. And it doesn't even end there. I mean, talk about giving back. Here's a story. You donated bone marrow to save someone's life. I guess what I'm trying to kind of get to overall is where does the sense of humanity come from? And a lot of people want to do 
good things. They, they have empathy. Mm-hmm. It's another thing to get off the sidelines and to actually commit to doing something. Where does this sense of humanity and you really committing to doing something about giving back, where does that come from? Um, I think I've always been sort of a team player, as it were, you know, playing a lot of sports and stuff as a kid. And also I lay that with my natural joy that I have as an entertainer. I always want everyone to be happy. I always want everyone to be in a good place. You know, you, you know I'd rather everybody work in a good environment, you know, than a shitty environment. Yes. I generally want people to have a good time. So I love directing because I generally want to have a laugh. I was uh, in London many years ago and um, I came across the story of a young boy, 12-year-old black boy who had leukemia. You know, he was waiting for a sort of bone marrow uh, transplant. Being black, uh, I think it's something like if you're white, you have a one in 10 chance of finding a blood match. I think if you're black, it's a one in 1,000 chance because in so much blood mixing on, on our travails across the world through Africa that it's very difficult to find a, a match for black patients, black leukemia patients. The numbers are really not in your favor. So we went on this drive to encourage people to, black people to get on the register. And the following year, it was at Nottingham Carnival, I saw the lady whose son had leukemia, who passed away a couple of years ago. I saw her doing one of these drives and um, she'd started something called the Afro-Caribbean Leukemia Trust, which was a charity specifically to raise awareness within the black community and to try and get more black people onto the blood donor register. I, I, I saw her, so I kind of went in and she herself put the needle in my arm and took a sample of my blood. And it went off into the blood National Blood Register. I was you know, there ready, basically, to go. And then about two years later, I'm doing this job in in Vilnius, in Lithuania, and I get this call saying, uh, you're a match for somebody. We, we can't tell you who it is, but it's a young person, and um, you're a very, very close match. You know, would you be willing to donate? I was absolutely. <laughs> it was like, it felt like I'd won the lottery. It, was, it felt quite emotional. I thought, yes, I've got a chance to save someone. So they took me through the process, and it meant seven days. For seven days, I had a lady, a nurse come around and, inject me with um, some serum. But you, your body produces stem cells anyway. This, whatever it was, was boosting my stem cell production in my body. Come the seventh, seventh day, I would go in and get the needle in my arm. Blood would get would, would come out of my arm. And it's quite emotional because, because at the same time, that person is at their most weakest because they're having all the blood drained out of them ready for this new set of blood just take as much as you can and it, it after about an hour the machine stopped working and i was like cut me cut me and then it went off to this person and um and they they, they had another another three years wow i felt that i kind of failed but the doctor said no that's three more years than they would have had you know if you hadn't have done that so it was emotional that's an incredible story and you saved his life you gave him more time yeah no, no, it's kind of, it, but you would, I, I would think, I don't think we've actually seen the best of the humanity through this coronavirus. I, it's been quite depressing and sad to see how we've been so divisive with it and, um, and not prepared to think for each other and protecting each other. And it's been depressing that we haven't had that. I mean, you kind of wish that people would have that 
thought for others. Because as you were saying at the beginning of the program, you know, you've got to, at some point you've got to do something, you know, you've got to, you know, actually stand up and, and, and make, try and make something count. So I guess that was my way of just actually saying, I want to be in the game. Your sense of humanity and getting off the benches to help people. You make the time and you're involved with so many different charities and, and contribute in numerous ways. What would your advice be to somebody who would say to you, David, I don't have your resources. I don't have your you know, income or I don't have your platform or whatever it is. What would your advice be? I think everyone's going to find that small thing that they can do, whether it's random acts of kindness or you know, finding a way to, to affect, just affect your day. It, you know, it could be you talking to a stranger or you know, being there for a friend. I just think it's just being open to other, other people. You know, staying curious about about the world and not accepting. It's so worrying right now. It's been a jagged road that you've been on. Um, you went through the documentary, the fragility of being feeling so exposed, but finding it now a place that grounds you and you are able to look at. Now you're writing a book. Just finished, by the way. When is that coming out? Oh, it'll be this August. This August? Yeah, so August, September. All right, I'm going to put that on my calendar so I can go get my copy. But with the jagged road you've been on, being clocked in the head, mm-hmm. with struggling with identity, with the psychotic break, when you look at that for a second and you take it all in, mm-hmm. what do you celebrate? Oh, my God, I celebrate that I got through it. And I really do. It's extraordinary. I, I know one of the things I found out in this, um, by looking at my medical records and giving them to the psychologist who appears in the documentary, actually, Dr. Erin Turner, who had stayed quite good friends. So I sent her a copy of, the, of my records to peruse. She said, you were given three times the legal dose of tranquilizers, three times a day, three times the legal doses. I don't know how my mind got through that. I mean, I was literally plied with some very strong antipsychotics for five days you know i only have brief memories and flashes of things that happened there's things that i would remember and think where is that memory i can't place that memory it's only from reading my medical records that i go oh that's what that was you know it's just a flash of a memory that i can see me doing something and and i never knew and i never knew what it was but i know i've read my, my my medical records it says that's what i did and i'm like Fuck, that's, that's, oh my God. So there's all these chunks coming, falling into place of my life that I've been unable to place, unable to um, locate. And I'm able to, as you say, put that, put the pieces of this jigsaw together now and sort of go, oh, I see, you know, this is the picture. I'm just glad I can keep finding pieces because it just adds more color, adds more flavor to who I am. Do you feel like you are a better person for going through it? And surviving it? Oh, God. Oh, my God. Yes, without a doubt. You can't go through something like that. Well, you can, but I can't. No, you can. You can, and people do. I've been very lucky. I work in a profession, because lots of people write and tell me, they tell their bosses that they had mental health problems and they've been fired on the spot. People still aren't totally okay with it. But luckily, I work in a profession where as long as you turn up reasonably sober and remembering (laughs) your lines, you you can kind of get away with it. I sort of got away with it for the last 30 years and it seems to be working. I'm lucky enough. What's the number one lesson that you've learned that you like to pay forward? 
first of all, I would say acknowledge it, acknowledge that you're struggling, and then take some help and try and get yourself through it. Because burying it and sort of ignoring it, I think only it just builds up, builds up, builds up to the point where it just it just explodes, as it did with me. But I think had I have had the right information early on and known what was happening, I might have been able to arrest my slide and, and uh, correct course and seek some help, get some early intervention. Particularly if you're struggling, I think struggling mentally, it's, it's, but you can very easily lose control. So I would always encourage people to seek some kind of help if they can. I really think it's incredible that you put yourself out there in the way that you did. You really, you know, went out on a limb to help others. It hasn't always been easy. As I say, it was, you know, doing the publicity for it was really tough because I would be talking about myself, yeah. my deep, darkest stuff. Be on a radio show, it's, you know, radio, some radio Cheshire, and oh, no, over to the weather. And after weather, we've got David Hale talking about his mental illness. And uh, <laughs> David, tell us what happened. And, you, you know, you've got to kind of, kind of wrap it up in these kind of snappy sound bites over a cheery breakfast show about your deep, you know, deepest, darkest pain. And after about 20 minutes, I just wanted to get out of there. It's just like, oh, I can't do this. This is, this is tough stuff, you know. It's such a weird and messed up position to be in. You know, here you are, you're trying to talk about something so hard and you're creviced between like a cooking segment and the weather. But that's, that's the job. It's in between the news and the weather, you know, it's, it's, that's the job, as you say, but it was, it was tougher than I thought. I recognize how, because I've been doing Supergirl for the last six, five, six years, and, you know, I only have two months of the year back in England. And I, I always tend to fill that time up with interviews and requests. And before I know it, I'm exhausted. And, and, and I, I've had to learn not to do that and to rest because, um, like I was when I was exposed, it was just too much. And I found just emotionally just too much. So uh, and you have to be careful as well. David, will you come back in the future? Yes, of course. I love it here. So we have a signature sign-off here, David. Can you let me know who you are and what you represent? My name is David Harewood, and I, I represent truth, honesty, and the ability to be yourself with no shame or judgment attached. With great thanks to David Harewood for coming to Repin, for sharing his story and courage, and for all the work he's doing, not only on screen, but for the incredible advocate he's being, giving back in so many powerful and wonderful ways. Want to keep up with David? Yeah, I thought you would. So I'll have his social media handles in the episode description. Next up, from Hamilton, Jesus Christ Superstar, Rent Live, Power, we have the Tony, Emmy, and Grammy Award nominee, Brandon Victor Dixon. Every action I take is putting something into the world. It's putting something into the equation of exchange. So I need to think about what I'm introducing into the equation of exchange. Hey guys, Brandon Victor Dixon here. And guess what? I'm coming to Reppin. Reppin is available on all top podcast platforms. And you know what? Every episode is available for download. So get them on your devices and subscribe. Tell your friends and leave a review. Talk to me. I want to know what you think. You can reach me on Twitter at Reppin Podcast and follow me on Instagram at Reppin underscore podcast. Thanks always to Nelson Pinero for all of his time, talent, and care. And always love and thanks to Gracie Kong. Reppin is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Until next time, stand up and represent.
Hi, it's Jennifer, a founder of the Go Kid Go Network. Do your kids love wacky worlds, superheroes, and inventing? Of course they do. That's why our shows Bobby Wonder and Lucy Wow are set in Pflugerville, the nonstop fun and adventure universe where imagination, creativity, STEM, and positive role models abound. Join the Pflugerville fun by searching for Bobby Wonder and Lucy Wow on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.